and it's good to see you here uh, on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. We've been in a sermon series, a couple of little sermon series throughout the last few months uh, through Acts chapters 13, 14, and 15. We first looked at Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, We always call it Paul's missionary journey, but there was a guy with him the whole time named Barnabas. And we come now to the end of Acts chapter 15 after learning about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and we're coming to the end of our time in Acts for a while. We're coming to the end of this section on the church, and sadly, we're coming to the end of the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. As we read in the psalm this morning, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And the psalm goes on to say, it's like oil running down the beard of Aaron. Never quite made me think about good and pleasant, but maybe it does something for you. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How awful it is when they don't. What a horror it is to see the church divided. Schism within the body of Christ is a sad reality. The division of the church is a sad reality that has been especially staring us in the face for hundreds of years now. You can think of the great schism in the 11th century between East and West, Greek and Latin Christianity, or the European wars of religion in the 16th centuries, the Reformations and the Counter-Reformations and all the things that went along with that, or just the intense fracturing of Protestantism over the past couple hundred of years, a couple of centuries. Uh, Just to name a few of the major fault lines. And of course, we all know how this happens at the level of individual churches being split up. In light of all of this, the unity of the church appears elusive at best and farcical at worst. There's division. Now, I want to say first, though, of course, the church has acted legitimately to divide Christianity from non-Christianity. Not everything goes. Uh, for instance, we've been learning in, in this passage about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that there are certain teachings and practices that are totally outside the bounds of Christian faith. If you teach that circumcision is required for membership in God's family, outside the bounds. If you think that moral commitments around idolatry or sexual immorality or bloodshed are unimportant, wrong. And there are also these councils outside of Scripture, these ecumenical councils. The Council of Nicaea, 325, says if you taught that Jesus, the Son of God, was anything less than of one being with the Father, you are outside the bounds of Christian faith. And so on and so forth. There are councils that continue like this through the 8th century, essentially fighting off new versions of the same old errors that threaten the core of the Christian gospel. So there's a legitimate division that the church makes between what's genuine Christian belief and practice and what's not. But there's another type of division, and this one is illegitimate and scandalous. It's division within the body of Christ itself. 
It's a division that while often uh, cashed out in doctrinal languages and differences of belief, often has its origination in cultural, ethnic, and personal differences. These differences harden over time to the point that they become virtually intractable. And in the end, the church finds herself in a tragic situation, confessing the reconciliation of all things in Jesus Christ, and yet herself not being fully reconciled within herself. Have you ever thought of this? Does it trouble you? It should. It, it probably should trouble us more. It's a tragedy. And the dynamics of this tragic situation emerge in today's scripture reading from Acts chapter 15. It's verses 36 to 41. It's on page 791 of your church Bibles. If you can turn there, it would be great to have that open. The crux of the passage is verse 39. It says, And there arose a sharp disagreement so that Paul and Barnabas separated from each other. Think about this for a second. Put it in context. Chapter 15 has been about the unity of Jews and Gentiles in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And now two of the church's most important leaders undergo a bitter divorce. It's a tragedy. It's sort of remarkable that Luke includes this unflattering account here. Why not just leave it out? Well, probably because this is the reality in which the church lives. And if we are going to discern the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we're going to have to do it and confess that reality in the midst of the wreckage of human sin and division. So that's what today's text points us to. It's about how we confess and seek the reality of the church in the midst of her brokenness. If you want three pegs to kind of hang this message on three words purity passion and providence purity passion and providence before we get into it let's pray lord jesus your word says that you wash your bride and sanctify her through your word and we pray now that you would cleanse us that you would sanctify us to live as your church in the midst of a broken world, and also in the midst of a broken church. Please bless us now. Speak. Your servants are listening. Amen. First, purity. I came in today and someone saw that in the title and said, you going to talk about purity rings? No. Talking about holiness, the purity of the divided church is what we're talking about. It's holiness, the purity of the divided church is found in Christ. The church's holiness is in Christ and not in her greatest leaders even. The church's purity or righteousness is from Christ alone. In verse 36 of our passage, Paul and Barnabas want to go back and make a pastoral visit to all the churches that they established on their missionary journey. They agree on a holy task, but that's the end of their purity of heart. Verse 37 tells us that Barnabas wanted to bring along John called Mark. This is the guy that started out with them before. And then as soon as they, he saw the first sign of trouble, he tucked tail and ran. And so for this reason, Paul says in verse 38, John Mark is not worthy of going with us. He's proven himself unworthy, no way. 
And the result, as we've seen already in verse 39, is a sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement. In Greek, the word is a paroxysmos. It's a wrathful, bitter, indignant row. It's no minor thing. This, this sinful outburst of disagreement, think about what it erases here. It erases a holy friendship that probably began in Acts 9, shortly after then Saul's conversion. It undid a partnership that, ex- that, that spanned four or five years of pastoring in Antioch and relief work in Jerusalem and a world-changing missionary journey. It contradicted the reality of the unity of the body of Christ that Paul and Barnabas had themselves just successfully fought for in the Council of Jerusalem. This is anything but holy. It's sinful and it's tragic. I think the way that this disagreement is unholy is instructive for us. See what's going on here is really a clash of conflicting virtues or apparently conflicting virtues. For Paul, it's the virtue of loyalty, fidelity. For Barnabas, it's the virtue of clemency or mercy. And there are probably also personal biases at play here. Paul is understandably offended that this guy bailed out on them in their moment of need. Barnabas is understandably inclined to uh, give John Mark a second chance. Colossians 4.10 tells us that Mark, or John Mark, is his cousin. Now, in this situation, you would expect Christians, let alone ministers of the gospel, let alone the apostolic superduo of Paul and Barnabas, to seek the scriptures, to pray for divine resolution to this disagreement, to fast and pray as they've done in other difficult situations. But we see nothing like that here. Paul and Barnabas split. There's no effort to find the coherence of these apparently conflicting virtues in the person of Christ, where they do cohere, severity and mercy. In other words, their unholiness, like so much of the church's unholiness, is an overconfidence in its own holiness and purity. And the isolation of one particular thing that it thinks is most important above everything else. And dividing over that. What do we learn from this negative example, both as a church and as individual Christians? Do we give up our firmly held positions, our distinctives as a church? No, but we must maintain these firmly held convictions in a certain way. See, the root of Christian division is not merely that there is disagreement over important secondary issues. That's true. The deeper root of division often is the proud assumption that one's view on topic X or practical matter Y is equivalent to divine truth. So if you don't talk about justification like us, you're out or barely in. If you don't organize your church like us, you're out or maybe barely in. Or if you don't take our view of spiritual gifts or eschatology, if you don't do liturgy like we do it, you might barely be in. And that way lies division. 
the un virtual unchurching of brothers and sisters, and when the conditions are right, even violence. See, we can't undo the difference in the church. We can't undo 2,000 years of history. We can't do, undo 500 years of history. We cannot just give up our convictions that we find substantively made in the scripture. But we can hold to them and advocate for them with a remembrance of the fact that they are, even at their best, partial approximations to the reality of Christ. See, the truth of the matter, the purity of the church is found in the one who always transcends us, even transcends us Anglicans. See, we have to find where is the holiness of the church? It's in Jesus Christ. It's in Christ alone. That's the first thing. Here's the second one, passion. The passion, using passion in the word of suffering, the passion of the divided church is what manifests her Catholicity. It is ultimately a shared suffering that, with Jesus Christ that, you, that creates the universality of the divided church. You know, the calling of Jesus Christ to every Christian and to his church is to take up the cross and follow him. The church is called to join Jesus in his passion, to live out a cruciform, self-sacrificial life for the sake of the world. It's a life of faith in God in the midst of injustice. It's a life of peace in the midst of war. It's a life of humility in response to pride. The church is to die to herself and with Christ, trusting her triumph to God. But the church hasn't always wanted to take up her cross. And in times and places, the church wants to exercise power without self-sacrifice. And this is almost always a factor in the division within the church. One part of the church exercises power in the way of the world, aggrieving another part, and they feel justified in responding in kind. I think that's what's going on with Paul and Barnabas here. They're feeling powerful. Think about all they've done. They just made doctrine at the Jerusalem Council. And they forget the cross. And tragic division results. Failure to take up the cross divides Christians, divides the church. But suffering with Christ brings out the reality of Catholicity that was hidden and denied by the church's sin. You can see this somehow working out in relation even to this story in Acts 15. See, if you know the rest of the story in Acts and Paul's epistles, you know that Paul will end up in prison for his faith, and he will go, we learn from church history, to martyrdom. He talks about bearing in his body the marks of Christ's suffering. He's in chains for Christ. Paul goes on soon hereafter to really learn suffering. And I want you to see what it means for his falling out with Barnabas and Mark. See, when Paul has learned suffering and realized his own weakness, he reaches out to Mark, writing to Timothy saying, send him to me, for he is useful to me for ministry. And then when Paul writes from prison in Colossians 4.10, who is in chains with him there? Mark. It's Mark. 
And what does this show us? I think it's this powerful image. As one author puts it, the dispersed body, the divided body, is, as it were, regathered in prison. Brought together by suffering. While the church has always had its tragic divisions, some of its worst divisions have occurred following an age in which the church wielded great power for hundreds of years. Christians wielded great power, but ultimately succumbed to the temptation to use power without taking up the cross, turning on one another, and turning on weaker peoples and killing and enslaving them. And now we're left here picking up the pieces of division and sin as best we can. We're still grappling with the fallout, really. And part of this fallout may just be that the church would now be given over to a period of suffering again sometime in the future. I don't know what the future holds, but it's plausible. And while no one wishes for this, it may be God's way of disciplining us and bringing us together across certain divides and manifesting the Catholicity of the body of Christ. What the Pope says of other places in the world might one day be true here or in Europe. He says, today there is an ecumenism of blood. In some countries, they kill Christians for wearing a cross or having a Bible, and before they kill them, they do not ask them whether they are Anglican, Lutheran, Catholic, or Orthodox. Their blood is mixed. It's the passion of the divided church that is her Catholicity, shared suffering with Christ that manifests the true universality of God's church. Here's the third and final thing, providence. Providence. We must say that God's providence over the church is the breaking of the body of Christ for the sake of the world. Though our division is tragic and scandalous, it is somehow enfolded into God's plan of redemption. Providence. Look at what happens when Barnabas and Paul split up. If you read verses 39 and 40, Kind of looks like Barnabas just storms out while Paul sticks around and gets prayed for. But I don't think that's quite right. The, the subordinate clause, having been commended, I think should be seen to apply to both. The church prays for and sends off both, even as they go in this tragic separate direction. And so it's both of them going their separate ways, and yet providentially being sent out, commended to the work of the Lord. The work of Paul and Barnabas multiplies from one team, into two. We know the rest of Paul's story, his letters, his eventual martyrdom. We don't know as well that Barnabas had a long ministry on Cyprus and in parts of Syria and was himself eventually stoned as a martyr. There's also a, a, a very old and at least somewhat plausible case, no, by no means certain, that Barnabas was the author of the book of Hebrews. Anyway, however tragic the parting, whatever might have been, had they stuck together, it's clear that God still used these two men for the sake of his kingdom. From one angle, it's human sin breaking the body of the church, just like it was human sin that broke the body of Christ. But from another angle, it is God who gives Christ and his church as broken bodies for the life of the world. So much of what has happened to divide the church is sin, plain and simple. 
radically tainted by sin, the schism between the East and the West, the Reformations, the Counter-Reformations, all of it's marred by sin up and down. Some of it, we must conclude, I think, is the judgment of God on his people. Let's not pretend otherwise. Nevertheless, we should try to discern divine providence in the midst of our ecclesial brokenness. We have to see that Christ has given the gift of the church, his body, into a sinful and broken world. And the church herself has become marred by sin and brokenness in the process. And yet... As Christ said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Even in its fractured state, the church has continued to be used by Christ to minister life and healing to the world. It does this best, I believe, when it is most honest and repentant about its own fractured state and looks to Jesus alone for its holiness. This is God's providence in and over the church that even in our division, he takes us and he uses us. The breaking of the body of Christ for the sake of the world. Well, that's all I've got. In just a few minutes, we're going to stand together and we're going to say the creed. And we're going to come to that line. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We say, I believe. Notice what this means. It's an article of faith. It's a revealed truth. It's not something that can be known uh, by the naked eye. Goodness, no. It's not a public fact. It's not a great unity that was once possessed in some idyllic age and has been tragically lost. It's a reality that we look forward to like we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. And in the meantime, we must embrace and love the one holy Catholic and apostolic church in all its messiness as a crucified and broken body. Not becoming triumphalistic. That's often what leads the church to commit greater sin. It's as we live self-consciously and repentantly in this tension between what is and what will be that we can be people of peace in the midst of the wreckage. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.